Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Hello, welcome back to GEMCAST. I am here with a return guest and amazing geriatric EM leader, Dr. Lauren Sutherland. She is at The Ohio State University, where she is an associate professor and director of clinical research. She is also the founding director of their level one geriatric ED. We are going to talk today about a complex geriatric syndrome that you have probably never heard a talk on before, and that is self-neglect. Lauren, let's start out with a case. First of all, welcome to GEMCAST, and now let's start out with a case. Thank you so much. It's so great to talk. The last time we talked was pre-COVID, so it's wonderful. It has been too long. I know, and I think I'm especially excited that you chose this topic because this is something one of those unrecognized problems that we do see all the time in the ED and get no training on in medical school or residency about how to identify this problem or address it. And if you think that you haven't seen it in the ED, you've probably seen it in one of your relatives as they age. Mm, Wow. One example is a case I saw recently of an older man who called 911 for a cough. He came in and when he walked in the room, he was a thin older man and he was dressed appropriately, but his clothes had some stains on them, but he wasn't disheveled. And he was able to talk to you well, but you could tell that in a quick conversation, he might not have all the memory of events that we would like people to have. And he said he'd been coughing for a couple of days and just felt bad. And you do your whole medical assessment and you diagnose him with a bronchitis and maybe you do or do not follow infectious disease guidelines and you give him a z-pack or some steroids or whatever you like to do and you send him home but if you had taken another moment you would have noticed that he appeared very frail that he had some temporal muscle wasting that he had very little muscle mass and we tend to think of older people as oh you know you lose all your muscle as you age but in him these were signs of malnutrition And you also might have noticed maybe his potassium was slightly low or his sodium was a little bit off, but nowhere near where we'd intervene on most people. But these can be signs of self-neglect. And what I heard from the social workers involved in his case is this man was living at home in the community and his dementia had worsened to a point where he was forgetting to eat. And they were sending meals on wheels to him several times a week and he would just stack them in the kitchen and would save them for later. And when they came into his house, finally just found rotten food all over and he, his BMI was 16 and he was severely sarcopenic. Wow, that's a great case to think about because it's something that we could be seeing. And like you said, missing. Now, Lauren, when we think about abuse or neglect, more often we're thinking about other people causing harm, other people causing physical abuse, financial abuse, emotional abuse, 
or sexual abuse, or just neglecting somebody who's in their care, whether it's a dependent who's pediatric or who is geriatric or in other ways unable to take care of themselves. Now, when they live alone, like your patient did, and they are the ones taking care of themselves, it becomes self-neglect. So tell us a little bit more about what this means and how we would consider even diagnosing it. Self-neglect, I think, is the most challenging type of abuse and neglect to diagnose and to care for because, as you said, it's the patient's decision. And so it involves all these issues of capacity, autonomy, and values. And we'll get to a few cases where we talk about how a patient's value make value system may contribute to self-neglect. So the definition is an adult's inability due to a physical impairment, mental impairment, or diminished overall capacity to perform essential self-care tasks. So it may be that they are no longer able to dress themselves, to keep their hygiene up the way they'd like, to keep their housing up to a point where it is hygienic. And everyone's heard stories of the paramedic going into someone's house and there's 10 dogs and feces on the floor or the water and the electricity have been shut off because the person hasn't had the cognitive capacity to pay their bills. And wouldn't it be great if we could reach people and intervene before things got to those terrible situations? So when we think about these patients who may come into the ED, um, you know, when we identify abuse and neglect, we are in most states considered mandatory reporters. How often are these kinds of things reported and have you had experience with that? Self-neglect is actually the primary type of cases reported to adult protective services. And it's often reported by healthcare workers and community workers. Many times it needs someone going to the patient's house and talking with them because when you pull them out for a 10 minute visit with their primary care doctor, it's hard to pick up on these things. Common symptoms include hoarding, Hoarding to the point where your house is a danger is a type of self-neglect, unsanitary conditions, and medical neglect. So that patient who says, oh, I sometimes forget to take my pills. Is that a choice? Do they understand what's going to happen to them if they stay off their Lasix or forget to take their Lasix and they have heart failure? So you have to consider this also in the patient who keeps coming back for recurrent exacerbations of acute illnesses. Is there something else going on, whether cognitive or socially, that's preventing them from caring for themselves appropriately? So let's go back to that patient that you had. Let's say next shift, I have a patient who I now start to notice, oh, they have temporal wasting. I wonder if that's, is that just getting old and frail or is that self-neglect? Or maybe they look like they haven't been able to take care of themselves or their clothes as well as um, you might hope. What things should we be thinking about or should we be doing in the ED in terms of what questions we ask or what labs or meds we look at? I think getting collateral information is the first big thing. If there's a family member, a case manager, if this person is part of your local area agency and aging's program and they have a community case manager, understanding that and what those teams who know those, this person and follow them well are doing is really important because they may be able to say, oh, we're really worried about him. He's declined significantly in the past six months. And now I'm worried he won't be able to keep things up at home. But patients will never voluntarily come out with that information. Very rarely does someone come into the ER and say, I've been living by myself in my house, but now I think I really need placement today. 
What about in terms of our workup, if we're thinking they may be malnourished or having some self-neglect, what things should we look at? I think that workup is very similar to the workup you do for any concern for elder abuse. So you want to check, especially their electrolytes, maybe get a pre-albumin, which is something we don't often do, or LFTs. If they have a medication they should be taking and you want to see if they're actually able to take it, whether it be Depakote or a lot of the seizure meds we can often check on, that's very helpful. And then a really good physical exam. This is not the person where you take out your stethoscope and haphazardly listen to the heart and lungs and say, you're good to go and send them out the door. Also documenting a complete cognitive exam. It is very frustrating for people in the community trying to help this person if we continually discharge them home saying they have the capacity to keep doing this to themselves. So what is a quick way to assess that? Because of course the challenge in the ED is we also have other patients to see and we're stretched and we don't have a lot of time to do you know, a 30 minute cognitive assessment test. How could we quickly say, okay, yes, this person may have lost some weight, but they're safe to go home. They can make their own decisions about you know, this versus no, they really don't have the capacity and I may need to keep them here for more immediate placement. So the four elements of capacity are communication. So if there's any barrier to communication, maybe they don't have their hearing aids, maybe they speak a different language and you're not sure if the translator that you have is working well, or you don't trust the translator, maybe it's a family member. So communication is really big. And then recall. And there are a lot of really good quick cognitive tests to assess recall. You can do a mini cog, you can do a MOCA or MMSE. If you have a little more time, those are more, again, the 15, 20 minutes, but the 4AT or a mini cog are good. I also like to do a quick trails exam. So you don't have to do the full MOCA, but just print it out and have them do the trails, which is, can you do 1A, 2B, 3C? Can you follow my instructions? And if they can't do that, they probably shouldn't be driving. And I also am concerned about whether they can take pill A at 9 a.m. and pill B at 10 p.m. So just for our, for our listeners to kind of close the loop, walk me through your mini cog. You can, you can do it on me. Okay. If I don't sure. pass, we're going to end right now. <laughs> so the mini cog, the way I do it is I usually make sure I say, I'm going to ask a few questions to test your memory and your thinking today. So make sure that I'm explaining everything at the level that you need it explained. So I'm going to start with easy questions and then I'll move to some harder ones. And then I ask them to say their full name and birthday because that should be easy for everybody. If there's anybody else in the room, I ask them to introduce the person in the room because that's another quick cognitive test to even know who's in there and how the, what the relationship is. And then I do a three minute recall. So I'm gonna give you three words and then I'm gonna ask you later to recall them for me. If they have zero out of three recall, they will not be able to remember any of the medical instructions you give. And they're also at risk for not remembering those other things, paying the bills, keeping the lights on, the electricity, cleaning the house, not leaving food out, not leaving the stove on. Not leaving the stove reminds me that burns in older adults, you always, I always do a cognitive test. Why did they get a burn? Because if you've been cooking for 80 years and now suddenly you're burning yourself, I worry. So orientation, recall, 
And then I add in a little bit of a focus screen, sort of like the brief delirium triage screen, ask them to spell. I say, when you were in school, were you better at math or spelling? And if they choose math, we do serial sevens. If they choose spelling, we do lunch or world backwards. And often they'll, they'll tell me, and you can often get a sense, ask how far did you get in school? Because that will help you too when you're assessing cognition to know their level of education. But all in all, I can do a quick orientation and three-word recall in a minute and a half. And then I will go back in and put out a trails or other testing if I think it's necessary. That's great. So asking them their name, date of birth, who's in the room with you? Do they know that that's their daughter and not their mother? Sometimes they'll say, oh yeah, I'm here with my spouse or partner or husband. And that husband has been deceased for 20 years. And you realize, oh, okay, they're they're able to carry a conversation sort of with me and tell me, yeah, things are going fine. I feel okay. And, and yet they really are not oriented. They think it's 1987, things like that. And you don't know unless you ask. I'm always shocked when this happens, but I shouldn't be by this point. And then asking them those three things to remember. I, what are, I always use Apple Table Penny so that I don't forget them. What do you like to use? I, it's, it, I should be better and be like you and have three words I always use, but I like to change them around just to challenge myself too. <laughs> I like that. But you want it to be easy, well-known words, and you don't want them to have a theme. Mm. So you don't want to do red, blue, and orange because then they're all colors. Mm -hmm. So, so pick something three like, words. <laughs> yes. Easy, common, concrete things, not abstract ideas, and then have them recall them within five minutes, and then have them do some sort of test of attention and focus. And I like that you have the verbal option and the numeric option to give people so that they can you know pick. Another thing I will ask people is some functional questions. So this is this one's really helpful if they've got family in the room to say, what would you do if you smelled smoke in the house? And if they can't clearly mm -hmm. say, I would call 911 in case there was a fire and get myself out, then there's a problem. I remember one woman answered me, smoke? I don't smoke at all. And her family was just shocked. Wow. What are some other things that are helpful to ask? I mean, do you ask them, hey, are you able to pay the bills? Do you have running water and electricity? Or how do you get at some of those things that may not be manifest just based on their history and physical? I try to ask very open-ended questions. What's the most difficult thing around the house for you? Oh, that's so good. What kind of answers do you get? I have gotten everything from, you know, the one thing I really need is just someone to come out on Mondays and take the garbage cans down to the curb and back up. I just can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. To, I can't go up to the second floor anymore because the stairs are too hard. Or sometimes it's hard for me to get up to the bathroom at night. So I put a jug next to my bed. So you get interesting answers. That's a great open-ended way to say it as well, so that there isn't any perception of, of judgment or bias. So we've talked about some of the things you can do in the ED to assess the patient, their cognitive status, whether they're safe to go home. But you also mentioned calling family members or caregivers to get collateral. We also want to be sensitive there because it can be a sensitive topic. How would you phrase your questions when you're calling family members to get a sense of that person's capability of managing on their own or whether they may be suffering from self-neglect. 
the first thing is to get permission from the patient to call. And the way I phrase it, if the person's there alone, I say, every patient I have who's here alone, I wanna make sure there's a second person who understands your medical reasons and what's going on here. Who would be the best person in your life for me to talk to today? And so they'll say, my daughter so-and-so or my next door neighbor. So then I have permission to call them. And again, you wanna be very open-ended. I'm calling to talk about Mr. Smith in the emergency department today. He said that it was okay for us to talk about his care and what he needs. Can you tell me a little bit about how you know him and how, how you've been involved with his medical care? And then the neighbor might say, oh, you know, I say hi once a week and I see him through the windows. So I kind of get a sense of he's up and moving around. And yesterday I didn't see him move around. So I knocked on the door and that's why I called 911. So then I know that that neighbor is not really a caretaker, but is watching over them, which is great. Mm -hmm. And you can also get a sense of how were they doing a month ago at home? Well, a month ago, they were blah, blah, blah. And, and now how is it? Are there any concerns you have if I send him back home? Those are all questions that I have asked in the past that work really well. But you don't want to come in and say, I'm discharging Mr. Smith home. He needs to take antibiotics twice a day. And I, I need you to schedule him a visit on Friday because you don't know what kind of relationship they have. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Especially if it's a neighbor or something who may be involved, but not at that level. Those are great examples. Now, thinking about one thing you mentioned is that patients who suffer from self-neglect may come into the ED more frequently. Is there an association between, for example, calling EMS and ED use and self-neglect? Yes, there is. In fact, the Chicago Health and Aging Project, which was a large longitudinal study, found that self-neglect was associated with a 42% higher risk of ED use each year compared to older adults who did not suffer from self-neglect. And I don't have good EMS data because that tends to be recorded just as chief complaint and where they were sent to and not as much about what living situation they're in. But I work with our local EMS agency, which has a social worker and a few other agencies that have community paramedics, which are invaluable in this situation. And they all notice that sometimes the way we discover self-neglect is increased medical care use, increased 911 calls. Maybe it's the patient who has far more fall calls suddenly than they used to for assistance getting up. Or the paramedics have been out to their house so many times that they alert the social worker that, yeah, they're really doing worse. Now, we're there once a month for the past year and a half. Yeah. Or, and especially the paramedics who go into the home, they can see things that we can't. Like you said, those meals were all stacked up and rotting in the kitchen, or there was so much stuff that in the house that it was hoarding and a, a hazard. To kind of put everything together, I wanted to see if we could walk through this descriptive kind of flow diagram that was put together in a paper in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, where they went through the risk factors and kind of the progression and what happens towards the manifestations, and ultimately the diagnosis of severe neglect. And what's interesting about self-neglect is that the patients do not realize what is happening. They are unaware of the danger of their impairment in their ability to do their ADLs. So the, the diagnosis of severe neglect that they included there was an unawareness to the hazardous and progressive decline in personal, social, physical, mental, or environmental domains 
leading to the inability to maintain culture and community standards of acceptable living that threatens one's own safety, health, and quality of life. So the kind of sine qua non of self-neglect is that unawareness of the level of hazard, and that's part of what makes it so challenging. If someone comes in with chest pain, they'll say, oh, I have chest pain. If someone comes in with self-neglect, by definition, they're not going to say, I have self-neglect because they are unaware of it and the way that it could be impacting them. So if we walk through this, some of the risk factors are some things you mentioned, but nutritional deficiencies, impaired cognition. So this patient you mentioned who had depression, sorry, dementia, but it also could be depression or a stroke. And then increasing age. You won't typically see this in the 60-year-olds unless they do have severe dementia or prior cerebrovascular accidents. And then long-standing untreated medical conditions like COPD, diabetes, hypertension, or untreated or inadequate treatment of psychiatric illness. So there's a big potential overlap in the depression, psychiatric illness, longstanding untreated that can also lead to self-neglect. And then things like frontal lobe dysfunction, or you know, if you say, are you able to take your medications? If you only take one medication a day, that's gonna be relatively easier. Whereas if, if you're on you know, sliding scale insulin, or if you're on you know, five different medications, then a slight impairment in your cognitive function is going to result in, now I can't handle my medication. So it has to do with the complexity of your medical treatment as well. Yeah, I think that unawareness is really interesting because from what I've seen, and this happens in dementia too. As your cognitive status starts to decline, some people have this, not really a sweet spot, but this time frame where they know they're having trouble and it's very hard on them emotionally and physically. And often we will shut others out to protect ourselves. Oh. You know, I, I'm not gonna let my niece visit. I don't want her to know how bad things are. Or the house starts to fall into decline because you can't keep up with the general maintenance and then you don't invite family over and then you stop going out to see family. So a lot of it also, they develop own protective measures and some of that social isolation, which then makes everything worse. Absolutely. And some of the, the predictors in terms of little things that might raise our antennae or our alarm bells, if we see a patient in the ED, some things like if they had a recent life, stressful life event or recent loss of a spouse or loved one, or recent cognitive decline or worsening depressive symptoms. And then also people who live alone, that's a, a big predictor or risk factor. Or recent physical functional decline, if they had a hip fracture and you know before they could manage, if they were able to ambulate, but now they can't ambulate well, they've become more frail. All of those things can kind of add to that vicious cycle that then results in decline in their personal or environmental health and domains. And, and often family, friends, or neighbors might attempt to intervene. But like you said, the, by the nature of self-neglect, the individual may refuse that intervention or may kind of become more isolated and secluded, which leads to worsening of that progressive decline in function. And some of the manifestations you mentioned, but just to kind of fill out the list, hoarding, poor personal hygiene, dirty environment, lack of utilities or dilapidated home, overgrown lawn, I kind of wonder about that sometimes when I drive through a neighborhood where all the lawns are really well kept and then there's one that has clearly fallen into decline. I kind of wonder, oh, is that person, you know, suffering from self-neglect being malnourished? So in terms of things we might see in the ED or if there's insect infestations in the house, 
or, you know, for when EMS comes in and they say, hey, this person had their living environment is not safe, or there were feces or urine smell, those can be signs. We need to not just brush that under the rug and say, okay, well, that's someone else's problem. Those are little clues. They are giving you little clues that this patient may have self-neglect. We had one patient whose water got shut off, so the toilet stopped working. So he would poop in a bucket and then toss it in the backyard. Oh, wow. And you know, you think, how did the neighbors not notice this for months? But we are so insulated as a community, we don't check on each other. Oh, yeah, man, this is a whole societal, this is a society problem. And but some of the manifestations that we might get clued into in the ED, are if we notice, for example, delirium, or hey, this person has hypertension or you know diabetes and it's really untreated. That can be a clue that they haven't been getting regular medical care or frequent hospital readmission, ER visits, or just the frailty, which is something we've talked about before on GEMCAST, frailty, medication non-adherence, or other forms of elder abuse. You can also challenge the patient when they're in the ED with you. Say, okay, all right, you think you'll be able to manage this cellulitis and this wound at home? I'm going to have the nurse bring in the equipment and I want you to show her how you're going to change the bandage and write down for me how often it needs to be changed. Mm, yeah, it's kind of a teach back. So here I've mm-hmm. taught you how to do this. Now teach back just to make sure that they can actually or understand. You know, as we're talking about this, this, like so many things, feels like such a big challenge. Something that how on earth can I at 2 a.m. in the ED help this patient? So let's bring it back to, I'm working in the ED, it's 2 a.m., like it always is in these scenarios, meaning I don't have case management, I don't have a social worker there at 2 a.m., and I'm concerned this patient is showing signs of of frailty, showing signs of malnutrition, lack of self-care, non-adherence to medications, and I'm like, all my alarm bells are going off (laughs) for self-neglect. What? And, And maybe I feel like, yeah, they're not safe to go home. Let's start that scenario first. What should I do with that patient at 2 a.m.? I think if your alarm bells are going off, see if there's a way you can keep them until the morning to get more collateral. And you could even say, I'm worried about discharging you right now. I want to keep you in the ER in the morning so we can get my case manager on board and make sure everything's okay. And, And you need to involve other people, because like you said, you can't sit there for a half hour doing a full psychiatric capacity assessment. So it may be even bringing them into the hospital for a day to get a capacity assessment, get a better cognitive evaluation, make sure that they are improving on the medications or can take care of their wounds or the issues that brought them into the ED. Just have a low threshold for admitting these people and make sure that you talk to the admission team that you are concerned about self-neglect and capacity because otherwise it's very easy for them oh, to come yeah. in in the morning, talk to the patient, the patient says, oh, I'm doing fine. I don't know why they kept me. <laughs> the whole Look, thing I, repeats. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm doing I great. Ate, it's 1986. I ate lunch. I'm ready to go. And, and, you know, these people, as we talked about, are very good about protecting themselves. They will confabulate. They will sometimes outright lie to get home. Mm, wow. Because there's such a fear of losing that autonomy and being put in a nursing home or some situation. For many people, staying in their home is very important to them. We have had several cases where being able to have pets with them 
is very important. And so they don't want to go to an assisted living facility or skilled nursing facility because they would lose their pets. Oh, that's such a, I can understand. That's sad. Um, let's say we have a patient again, 2 AM and we say, well, a few alarm bells are going off, but they seem to have capacity. There's not an immediate health threat. I think they can go home, but I don't want them to just go home and nothing changes and they just get worse and follow down that vicious cycle. What should we be thinking about or how should we approach that patient's care? That's when it's best if you have a plan with your ED already for these patients, and that will involve bridges with community organizations. So we can look up their address and say, okay, you live within this paramedic agency, we'll send a paramedic out to check on you in the home in the next 24 hours. Or your local area agency on aging will have case managers that can go out and see them in the home. And their case managers are really good. So if the person keeps refusing to let them in, they know something's wrong, right? I mean, we all know something's wrong at that case. Another thing is often their phone lines are disconnected. So people try to call them back for appointments and things and they don't have communication. So making sure that we have the correct address, we have a phone line that works and that you can have these community organizations go back in and check on them. If you have nothing in your community, you can always have the police swing by. People usually, that's pretty scary for them, but whereas a firefighter usually is welcome. So I tend to like the paramedic approach better. Plus then the paramedic can say things like, I'm here to check on your breathing after you saw the doctor yesterday. And people understand that. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for walking us through some real life cases, how you handle this, how we should think about it and approach it. You know, I think about the fact that we cannot, well, we cannot solve all of society's problems, period, but especially we cannot at 2 a.m. And so this comes down to, yes, having an awareness and knowing those warning bell signs that we should be looking for, but then also planning ahead for it. Because at 2 a.m., you can't reach your community paramedic organizations. You have to have those lines of communication and those workflows established beforehand so that you can then in, you know, send them a message or help get that patient the follow-up that they need. This is a really tough, challenging diagnosis to make and also to help with. And so the more that we can do hopefully the better outcomes these patients will have. I completely agree. And I think it's an area that each one of us can make a difference. So if you work in an ED, especially a small or, or rural ED that doesn't have a lot of resources, saying, okay, who among our faculty is going to start building these bridges and let's bring the community in because rural older adults are at the highest risk for self-neglect. You know, that tough old farmer who would never admit that things aren't going well. And they have fewer resources than patients in urban areas. So getting a plan in place for that outpatient follow-up, for that case manager phone call to different agencies, it doesn't have to be the Dr. Shenby doing it at 3 a.m. when there's two traumas and a drunk guy trying to pee on somebody. It's having this in place beforehand. And then once these protocols work well, you will be amazed at how many people you identify with problems because you've developed a system to find it instead of ignoring it. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for sharing your experience, your wit and wisdom. I look forward to having you on GEMCAST another time. Thanks. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of GemCast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GemPodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.